This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. For most of my adult life, I have followed a safe path. This was a conscious choice. I remember the actual moment I began the journey in vivid detail. It was in August of 1983, the summer I graduated from college. It was a hot and hazy evening. As I stood on the corner of 7th Avenue and Bleecker Street in New York City, wearing pastel blue trousers and a hot pink Miami Vice-like t-shirt, as I peered deep into my future and contemplated the choice between knowing and not knowing, between the secure and the uncertain, between the creative and the logical, I chose the path of what I now refer to as the path of responsible resistance. I grew up in an atmosphere that I would now describe as one of oblique and utter disarray, and my primary response as a young woman was a goal of self-sufficiency. I was bound and determined to make a success of myself, and inasmuch as I knew what I wanted deep in my heart, I was also compelled to consider what I thought was reasonable. For though I wanted what a good friend considers the whole wide world, I thought it might be more prudent to shoot for what was conventionally considered more responsible, or to be more specific, success that was realistically attainable. As a result, for most of my adult life, I have lived within a fairly fixed code. I am not unhappy with what has transpired in the 20-odd years since I first had this goal. Rather, on my best days, I am more curious as to the initial motivations of making this choice, the subsequent ramifications of that choice, and most importantly now, what can be built from the foundation of what I've chosen. I think that the codes we build for ourselves are rather impressive. Though we might believe that our personal codifications are fixed and determined, Because we have actually built them for ourselves and voluntarily live in the framework, they are not. Yet this does not deter us from dutifully believing in them and heeding them. As a result, while we might believe that the world's restrictions or expectations are too daunting or out of reach, what we are really doing is providing ourselves with an easy way out and a way to save face when we look in the mirror at what we've created. Then, often when we least expect it, we encounter someone more courageous, someone who chose to strive for that which might seem unrealistically unattainable. And we marvel. We swoon. We gape. Often we are in awe. I think we look at these people as the lucky ones, when in fact, luck has nothing to do with it. It is really all about our constitution, our belief in ourselves, and ultimately what we believe we are capable of. It is about how we have constructed our inner code. And though we might be desperate to change that inner code, it will never change just because we desire it to. In order to make any meaningful change, we need to understand what we want to be different. And then comes the hard part, determining how the code can be fixed or changed. 
According to Thomas Lewis in his book, A General Theory of Love, the scientist and artist both speak to the turmoil that comes from having a human brain. A person cannot direct his emotional life the way he bids his motor systems to reach for a cup. He cannot will himself to want the right thing, or to love the right person, or to be happy after a disappointment, or even to be happy in happy times. People lack this capacity not through a deficiency of discipline, but because the jurisdiction of will is limited to the latest brain and to those functions within its purview. Emotional life can be influenced, but cannot be commanded. Our society's love affair with mechanical devices that respond at a button touch ill prepares us to deal with the truly unruly organic mind that dwells within. Anything that does not comply must be broken or poorly designed, people now suppose, including their hearts. One of my favorite quotes from John Maida's book, Designed by Numbers, is this. The computer will do anything within its abilities, but it will also do absolutely nothing unless commanded to do so. I think we humans are like that, too. We will continue to obey our own codes and our personal codifications until we crash, reconfigure, or upgrade. So 23 years after writing my own code, I am now attempting to rewrite it. But for now, I can only view it as a work in progress, as the new code I am considering is not fully known to this author. Thus far, it is not something that I can articulate. It is not something I can describe scientifically or artistically. It is still just a code in progress. In the grand scheme of a life, maybe, just maybe, it is not about knowing or not knowing, choosing or not choosing. Perhaps what is truly known can't be described or articulated by either creativity or logic, science or art, but perhaps with the most authentic and meaningful combination of the two, poetry. As Robert Frost once wrote, a poem begins as a lump in the throat, a sense of wrong, a homesickness, a lovesickness. It is never a thought to begin with. Welcome to a very special Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Today is our 50th show and our season three finale. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, author, educator, and visionary John Maida. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. John Maida is a world-renowned graphic designer, a visual artist, a computer scientist, and a visionary at the MIT Media Lab, and he is a founding voice for simplicity in the digital age. Named by Esquire magazine as one of the 21 most important people for the 21st century, Maida first made his mark by redefining the use of electronic media as a tool for expression for people of all ages and skills. He's the recipient of the highest career honors for design and serves on the Board of Trustees for the Smithsonian's Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. A faculty member at the Media Lab since 1996, Maida holds the E. Rudge and Nancy Allen Professorship of Media Arts and Sciences and co-directs the lab's design-oriented physical language workshop and its Simplicity Consortium. He has had major exhibits of his work all over the world, and he has written several books on his philosophy of humanizing technology. And in 2004, Fast Company magazine included him in the 20 Masters of Design. Welcome, John. Thank you for being on Design Matters. Thank you. So great to have you here. 
I'm excited. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> well, I'd like to start. I'd like to start talking a bit about your history, which I find incredibly fascinating. Your parents were wed in Japan in an arranged marriage, yeah. and then in 1957 they moved to Seattle, where your father took over a tofu factory. Yes. So, so can you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are now from there? Well, um, I, I, I'm a classic sort of American, you know, son of uh, you know immigrants, uh, blue collar, working their way up. Uh, my father uh, wanted uh, us kids to get to college somehow, and uh, he only knew two colleges. Uh, they were MIT and Harvard, actually. Well, at least he had good taste. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know where the heck he got these names from. <laughs> but I understand uh, he thought schools were. We we lived in Seattle, of course. So right. These schools were far away. But didn't he think that MIT was in California? Didn't you he, both he think totally that? He did exactly. And then I was in when I was in junior high school. I discovered he was in Massachusetts. And uh, you know, my father just kind of had this belief that uh, we had to get education somehow. And um, I owe everything to my father's extremely boot camp style hard work uh, environment because uh you know growing up in the tofu store was like a like a living hell basically so he had no intention of you taking over the store oh no he said you know you guys you can't work like this you wake up at 1 a.m. you work to 6 p.m. at night 6 days a week often 7 days a week because you're a a sole proprietor and you got to work and you're sort of paranoid and um he said that he doesn't want us to work like this somehow move up in life and he wants us to do well and luckily because working at this tofu store was such a hard time, I loved going to school. It was like heaven. Yeah, I, I actually read that you thought that um, that it was um, that you, you thought school was paradise. Oh my god! you had to sit warm in, had, and yeah, nice. in a warm room and pay attention to the teacher. No one yelling at you. <laughs> But your father didn't want you to become an artist. I, I read that he thought that you would never be able to eat drawing pictures. Oh, yes, pictures. very, very pragmatic. You know, I was good at art and mathematics, and uh, he always ignored the art side And because uh, he was just a very practical man. He said, you know, how would you feed your family or your loved ones if you just drawing pictures? So when did you first realize that you needed to be an artist? Um, I think it was when I was like a, uh, a sophomore at MIT, and uh, I was, you know, at the time, the computer was just becoming visual, and um, I had a knack for making great icons. And um, I would show my icons, and people would say they look great, and my head started getting big, and then <laughs> and I, and I did get big. And then one day, um, I found a book by Paul Rand, the uh, amazing uh, American graphic designer, and I thought, man, I am nowhere near this man, and I have to somehow find my way. So, so you left MIT... Yes, uh-huh. and it was it, now I understand that that Muriel Cooper commanded you to go away to art school. Yes, yes, you know I was uh, I was at, I was normal MIT computer science track, and then I switched over to the media lab, and then I, I, I had an accident. I had a I, it was a triple. It was a tri- it was a sort of a perfect storm. I had a crummy PhD advisor. Um, I was looking for something, and uh, Muriel gave me this sort of Gandalf-like command to leave, go to art school, and my my then kind of girlfriend moved to Japan, so I chased after her. And that was Chris, your, your wife. That was Chris, exactly. <laughs> yes. Now, um, I understand that when you went to university, yeah. that the, the university that you attended had very scarce 
computer resources. Oh, my gosh, no computers at all. It was awesome. And you called it at the time, no electronic parasites. Oh, my gosh, no email. It was like heaven. So, so did, did, was that a term that you you came up with, electronic parasites? Oh, I mean, they're they're like they're like bad remora in the, the fish that act as sharks. I mean, uh, it was like being clean. At the same time, once the, the remora and parasites, I mean, if mosquitoes were gone, you know, you'd be kind of like you have nothing to do outside, nothing to swat at. You know, right. So you know, once they're gone, you you think. So what year did you leave? You were two years into MIT when you went to went back to school for a degree. Oh, I, I finished my undergraduate, my oh, master's, did. and then left. Uh, yeah. And um, so you got a PhD in design. Why a PhD yes. and why design? Why? Well, you know, this whole education thing. You know, why I'm an educator is because I lost my faith in education with my previous advisor, and then when I went to Japan, I found this wonderful man named uh, Akira Harada who was a product designer by profession, a professor at, at Tsukuba, where I went. And he was just such a wonderful, warm man. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with uh, him and his beliefs, and this went to, to uh, was his PhD student. It was a, a great time. Now, was there ever a moment where you were wondering what you were doing? Did you ever feel insecure about the path that you were now moving towards going away from MIT and back or and towards uh, design school? And oh, you, did you, that's did you a great know? question. Well, I mean, I, I was, you know, Chris, you know, you know God bless her. Uh, she was kind of wondering, what the heck are you doing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the same time, I was just so... I, I was I, I was driven, but I was sort of happy. You know, I kind of felt like this was this felt right. So what did your father think? My father, he didn't really. It didn't matter to him because he said that once I get my master's, I could probably make a living. So uh, <laughs> right. he, was, he was supportive in that sort of handoffish way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, John, we're going to have to take our first break, but we'll come okay. back really, really soon to continue our conversation. Right. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to the 50th show in the season three finale of Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is John Maida. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. The Voices of Design series brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part one. Enjoy. What is sustainability? And what does it mean to the design community? Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Phil Hamlet, Chairman, AIGA Environmental Committee. The definition of sustainability that I like to use is quite simple. It's basically leave the place in better shape than you found it. Scott Summit. Summit ID. Sustainability is particularly elusive, especially in industrial design, and that's one of the main reasons I'm here is to try to get a handle on what it means and just how it applies to what I do every day and what I can impart to my clients. Mark Willard, IDO. The pressure is on, and whoever solves it in a more sustainable and desirable way is 
ahead of the game and, and is what, whether people sort of consciously or subconsciously know it, it's, it's definitely what we need. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Are you looking for a unique perspective on today's market from an experienced economist? Well, look no further. Listen to The Economic Contrarian with host Mike Norman every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Business America Radio. Mike and his guests will discuss new trends in the marketplace as well as emerging companies and opportunities. So if you want in-depth analysis from a contrarian point of view, don't miss The Economic Contrarian Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.18 Eastern Time, and you are listening to the 50th show and the Season 3 finale of Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the visionary John Maida. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for John, our phone lines are now open. Please call 1-866-472-5790. And, John, we have a caller for you. Um, We have Gregory from New York City. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Congratulations on 50 shows. Oh, thank 50 you. It's a great show. It's, it is great. Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> thank um, you. John, I have a question. Since um, yes. you sit on the Board of Trustees of a museum, uh-huh. I, I do have a question. A couple of years ago, um, I went to Washington, and um, I went to the Museum of American History. Uh-huh. And one would think that this would really be this remarkable, fabulous museum. And hands down, it was the worst art director, the worst curated museum I've ever seen. I mean, they have these treasures, these treasures. You know, and our, our country is so young, oh, totally. and, uh, but we have these treasures, like Edith and Archie's chair is sort of slung haphazardly somewhere. Uh-huh. And um, I think the, the biggest example is they had a, an, an old auto map that they had put in there. And instead of serving, you know, American ice cream, they were serving gelato. And I wonder how, as sitting on a trustee's uh, board of a museum, right. Like, uh-huh. who's sitting on that board that they would miss the mark? Well, you know, where uh, the Cooper Hewitt is the, is the National Design Museum, and it does connect through the Undersecretary of Art uh, to the, uh, the, the, the Arts Museum side of the Smithsonian. And um, I will relay those comments on Monday <laughs> when I'm at the White House. <laughs> I mean, is it, is I will it really a matter of, we will get of that it being for you? Is it a matter of it being like a government institution that makes it so difficult to to get funding? I mean, there just American companies alone should be, you know, racing in there to have their iconic graphic history right. Right. represented. That's a wonderful idea. Um, if anything, I've I, I, I've seen that in the in the public institution space, you know, for the United States, um, it is an area that. That, that is lacking the avant-garde, uh, is lacking the, the cutting edge, and it's something that, you know, they're aware of in, in, that, in that community. And I think that more voices like this, and I, I really will tell people on Monday. Uh, <laughs> if you want a list, I can provide it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Please send me that. 
I will hand deliver it to the Undersecretary of Art. Okay. Okay? All Gregory, right. thank John, you for you're, calling. You're great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gregory. Bye. Um, John, I'd like to talk with you a little bit about yeah. some of your work on the computer. Um, right. Now, I understand that your first computer program, the first computer program you ever wrote was for right. a basic accounting system for your dad's tofu store. Yes. Uh-huh. So what, why, why code? Right. What 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 motivated you to study and learn and master the art of code writing? Well, um, a lot of um, if you remember the computer from long time ago, you would buy a computer for about a thousand something dollars, and you'd bring it home and you'd turn it on, and it actually didn't do anything at all. You know, there was no Microsoft Word, there was no software, so the only thing you could do is write code for it, write programs, and the programs were all in magazines, sort of these geek magazines, and you'd type them in and the, the program would run, but nothing special. Mm-hmm. So you decided to take the matter into your own hands? <laughs> well, mean, you know, you, you, you sort of need a mountain. Okay. So my mountain was the mountain of the tofu store, basically. <laughs> and I saw my mom doing all this billing every week, and I thought, hey, mom, I can write you a, a billing program to save you some time. And uh, that was my first uh, program. It was a mess. It was a complete mess. Now, one of the things that I, in, in reading, in rereading all of your books this week, one of the, a couple of things that I, I want to talk to you about some passages from, from I think all of your books. Um, but one of the things that really stood out this week was a quote that you wrote in Meta at Media, which is that our hands are the primary obstacle to advancement in the digital graphic arts. Yes. And I wanted to ask you what you meant by that, if you can elaborate on that a little bit. Well, this was uh, in 1992. I began to write a lot of computer programs that create complex graphics, and you know, at the time, I had this feeling that um, you know, uh, the computer has like millions and millions of virtual hands, whereas our hands are only two. And I was in a phase or a period where I thought, wow, you know, the computer has all these virtual hands. Let's use them. But I was completely humbled by my Ph.D. advisor, uh, Professor Harada, who came to my exhibition and saw my work and said, uh, so this is really complex, huh? And I said, yeah, that's the point. And he said, uh, well, if I went to China and visited my friend and I had $1,000, he would bring in easily over 1,000 people and make something more complex than you. So I really began to think after that. That was, a, that was, a, that was an old thought that I never reconsidered. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I read that your ultimate mission is to put the soul of the artist into the science of digital design. Yeah. Now, now, how how are you doing that? How is how is how are you how are you how are you fulfilling that mission? Well, this is you know the, the nice thing about being an educator uh, is that uh, you come in contact with so many sort of youthful, naive, happy minds. Mm-hmm. And I lose my way all the time, like anyone. You, you, you know, you're living and you just lose your way. And the students, just yesterday the students reminded me that everything has to have a conscience, you know. If you have a great technology like the nuclear bomb, uh, it's a great technology, but it also destroys people. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so that conscience factor is what I believe is what the artist is about. The person that cares about humanity, the person that cares about peace, cares about the experience of life, mm-hmm. and that's what has to go into the soul of technologists. It, was, it actually reminds me of a, a part, I believe it's in Meta Media, although it might, be, it might be in Design by Numbers, where you were talking about how your dad didn't even want you to throw away a piece of paper because he felt that 
even a piece of paper has a soul in some way. That's the that, that, that's the uh, Shinto uh, sort of framing of the world where everything is alive. And so I grew up thinking that everything is alive, everything is precious, and uh, I think it was a good. I taught my kids the same thing. Actually, you know, don't crumple that paper. You know, take care of that shoe. You know, it it has a it has a soul. Mm-hmm. So, do you feel like there's a soul that exists now in in the world of graphic design that we're living in? Um, I think I think design is a is a powerful soul. I think it's a strange soul because it. It sits on that precipice of on one side you have business and on the other side you have uh, free expression. And I think that the soul is what makes design not just business. It makes a great business. Mm-hmm. Now, what made you decide to study design and not fine art? Oh, well, actually in Japan I said a combination. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but... Uh, um, I liked design because of Paul Rand. It, it, I was just so... If you can imagine being a... You know, a messed up sophomore, and uh, in your intro, you were you were you were you were like me, uh, looking, searching, and you mm-hmm. read this book by this man who's so clear in his thought process. And I was driven to understand Paul Rand actually more than just design or art. I want to talk. I want to come back and talk to you a little bit about your relationship with Paul. But I, I read that you feel that it's doubtful that there will be great web designers in the manner that there were great print designers, such as oh, Ryan yeah, or yeah, Saul yeah. Bass. Do you still feel that way? Um, the reason why I felt that is because when you make things in print, it lasts. You can look at it. You can refer to it. On the web, if you make something, it really doesn't last very long. You'll make a project, and the browsers all change over, and suddenly your website doesn't work anymore. So I think it's more a question of visual media shifts and changes so much. It's so hard to appreciate. And that's mm. going to be very hard to remember the web designers of the past. Well, it's also hard to see, be seeing the same thing, you know, depending on your monitor. Completely. Completely. And, you know, what I'm looking at and what you're looking at, despite being the same web address, might be entirely different experiences. We don't know. Right, which, is, which in some ways I really love, but I, I also feel that that in, in many ways can't be a preserved experience, a mutual experience, where print design, I think, is, is a much more mutual experience. I mean, there are benefits on both sides, definitely. Um, now, in terms of, of your relationship with Paul, uh-huh. you, I know that you invited him to speak at MIT. I know yeah. that you were expecting him to turn you down, yeah. given that he was very, um, how should we put it nicely? Um, <laughs> but particularly so when thinking about interact, the interactive medium and, and, and web oh, design. Oh, yeah. Hated so, computers. So, so, we, so yeah. you were surprised that he said yes. Did he say yes easily, or did you have to persuade him? Um... You know, that was a very special time for me because, you know, I, I diverted my path by, you know, discovering his book. And then years later, I was at his studio and just encountering this amazing, you know, 81-year-old 80, 80, man at the time. And uh, he was just so human, so real. And at the same time, he really detested anything done on a computer right. uh, because he believed um, in using your hands. So what do you think was the primary thing that he taught you? What is his biggest influence on you? Um, his biggest influence on me, just I mean, I think of it at least every week, is how when I brought him to MIT and we were driving him back, and this image of him holding his wife's hand uh-huh. like all the way home, mm-hmm. you know? Or like even in his studio, he just sort of spontaneously hug his wife. 
And, you know, you got to say, you know, you know, in life, if you can have that kind of connection, mm-hmm. that's not a bad goal to achieve. That's wonderful. I think I'm going to um, take our break on that wonderful note. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that you're listening to the 50th show and the season three finale of Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is John Maida. We will be back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, part two of Adobe's Voices of Design series, a documentary that brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange. Today's topic is sustainability. Enjoy. The Challenge of Sustainable Design. Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Sonora Bean, Digital Hive Ecological Design. Sustainability isn't just a great idea, but it's a design challenge. And so as designers, how can we use our skills and our thinking and our strategy to promote social change? Ron Radziner, Marmel Radziner Architects. I think that architecture, as a profession, that we've become too removed from the actual act of making, and we've become kind of just aesthetic consultants. And I think that our office is this attempt to bring that all back together, which is really how buildings used to be designed and built, and take responsibility for what we design. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, 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 there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker, The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, The Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, businessamericaradio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to the 50th show in the Season 3 finale of Design Matters with J.P. Millman, the only talk radio show on the Internet focusing on issues relating to graphic design. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is the master, John Maida. 
If you want to join our conversation, if you have a question for John, our phone lines are open, 1-866-472-5790, and we have this wonderful timing yet again. John, we have caller. We have Peter from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hello. Hi, Hi Debbie. Hi, John. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, my question has to do with the changing technology. As technology's gotten more advanced, there's always been certain pitfalls. You know, as you were talking earlier about... Um, different web browsers making things look different. What do you think are the major pitfalls that designers need to be aware of in the future as far as designing within the constraints of technology? Oh, good question. Um, I have to uh, refer to something one of my students, my new students just joined uh, this month, and uh, his name is Tak Okamoto, and uh, he was, uh, we're talking about a system called Ruby on Rails. Have you heard of it? Yeah. It's a web development system that uh, uh, a company called 37 Signals uh, re- releases and develops products around. But it's, it's a very simple application skeleton to develop any kind of web app around. And also it's designed for easy portability. And Tak was saying how he loved it because he can just focus on the design side. Mm-hmm. The technology is there for free. And I think of that as the important sort of a hurdle where we can just stop thinking about, you know, the tags and HTML is going to be correct, the JavaScript, you know, works on uh, Mozilla browsers or not. It kind of drives, it drives me crazy. I'm sure it drives other web people crazy as well. well my, I have one other question. Uh-huh. Do you still eat tofu? <laughs> oh, actually, uh, at least twice a week. Uh, I also, uh, people ask me how to get a good tofu, and I describe it as the same way you buy good bread. If you're buying bread where all the bread looks exactly the same, that's a uh, manufactured bad tasting bread. But uh, a good tofu is uh, irregular, a hand cut, and uh, also you have to keep, to keep it fresh. You have to change the water every day. That's another tip. Wow! Okay. Thank that's you good. very much. <laughs> Thank you for calling, Peter. Um, I'd like to talk with you about something that you referred to also in Meta on Media, yeah. uh, Meta at Media, um, pure electronic thought. And you say, imagine if the computer we touch every day were viewable through special glasses that reveal this alternative reality. We would see something like a shimmering material of pure electronic thought, perhaps incomprehensible, but at least several universes away from the dreary click, key press, and drag that we associate with modern computing. And I, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about a little bit more about this alternative reality. It's sort of one of the things that I have uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about and trying to understand. And wanted to get your perspective on what you meant by a little bit more about what you meant by alternative reality. Well, have you ever seen those uh, sculptures that are usually called sculptures for kids? They're like uh, uh, those balls where the balls float around and then they sort of move around and something picks up the ball and the conveyor belt picks it up and the ball keeps moving around in space. Yes, um, yes. The machine, right? You see it, and you can see what the ball's doing. And the first time, it's kind of interesting. But after a while, you kind of get it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think of when you use a computer, it's very similar. You, know, you can, oh, okay, the ball's coming, the ball went, the ball's going to go this way. It's very predictable in a way. However, if you were to scratch away the surface of the computer, um, it's this uh, mass of electricity, where all these electrons are rushing all over the place at speeds we cannot imagine, mm-hmm. and also in parallel. They're running all over the place. It's like a bee, it's like a massive, massive, massive beehive, a little Manhattan, you know, underneath your desk. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the analogy back to the uh, ball sculptures, 
you know, if we don't, if by understanding the physics of all the, imagine if you could, you could be that ball mm-hmm. and be the ball as it hits all the atoms of air as it's moving through space. You know, could you feel that? You know, mm-hmm. how does that feel? Um, that experience, that first person experience in the computer is always something we always miss. That's incredible. <laughs> um, I, I, you also talk about how your children's growing curiosity, and speaking of, of children's toys, oh. Oh. Um, in the computer was an impetus for you for a wide variety of, of basic constructions, yeah. Yeah. Um, such totally. as a series of digital pinwheels that you did. Right. Uh-huh. And, and do you feel like your children have fundamentally influenced your work? Is there something about the childlike way that small people view the world that has right. influenced the way that you see electronic technology? Oh, definitely. I think that, uh, um, I, you know, I, I, I meet some of these, like, MIT students, and they're just so well-centered and everything. You know, I was, a, I was like a, 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 a walking mess. <laughs> really? In what way? I, I was, uh, I, I would call it typical male, uh, oh. low-feeling, low-emotional quotient. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, you know, uh, my family has really helped me to, to try you know, to, to, to be more human. In that sense, by seeing my kids in the computer, I didn't want them to enter the this inhumane world of computing. I wanted them to feel something as warm as they are. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you feel like you're able to do that? How are you able to get that computer to be warm? Well, that's something that uh, has been elusive to me. <laughs> Uh, early on, I designed different things for them to interact with uh, trivially, with voice and with touch and with sound and with uh, images, and um, and I was able to get somewhere. But again, going back to that sort of ball sculpture, I've always felt that the the computer itself is is this sort of a railroad track system. Mm-hmm. It's so um, it's not like clay; it's like little discrete pieces of sticks, and it's hard to make it a warm medium. I think the medium itself is the problem now. Well, you say that, you know, the average computer has four sensory inputs, keyboard, yeah. mouse, mic, uh-huh. and camera. Yeah. And yet humans have five, touch, yeah. taste, smell, sight, and hearing. Right. Do you think that there will ever be other sensory experiences that we will uncover in our journey at building technology? Well, I think people will. People already have a smell output. Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit scary, by the way. Oh, yay. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Um, and also, uh, one of my colleagues here is working on a, a direct brain-to-computer implant. So what is that? So basically, uh, you will feel what the computer feels, and the computer will feel what you feel. So there will be no input. It will just be the computer will be you. Oh, my God. So, um, so conceivably, a computer can get depressed. Well, yeah, hey, I like I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> um, completely. And um, But to me... Lonely? I, is it possible? I mean, if you're connected to the computer, then you can't ever feel lonely. I love it. It's like Woody Allen in the computer. <laughs> <laughs> um the whole emotional side of computers, I, I, I've just gotten kind of, I've gotten tired actually of computers in a way. In what way? Um, I just feel they're, they're too complex, you know. I mean, just yesterday we were trying to print out a document. And everyone who owns a printer knows it doesn't really print for you when it's the most important time. Oh, of course, yeah. It's like, this is really important, print one page out and just sort of error, message, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it just gets the hard fact that computers don't operate in a, in a humane, cooperative way. 
Well, you know, it's funny because at the end of Meta Media, you reveal that the majority of kinetic constructions that you make now are limited to no more than three hours of total construction time, <laughs> and that and that you said this was in due in part to your damaged hands. And I, I mean, how did you damage your hands punching a printer? <laughs> well, you know, I've uh, no, no, no. Actually, it's not so glamorous. Actually, uh, I'm a fast typer, uh, typist, and uh, I used to type continuously all night long. I never took care of my hands, and uh, as I get older, the whole other body doesn't recover, and uh, my hands are in pain uh, basically all day long. Oh, John. Yeah. So do you have to wear those like carpal tunnel? Things? I try everything. You try acupuncture, but I'm, but I mean, if you use a ballpoint pen, you can get carpal tunnel. Mm-hmm. You know, if you play tennis, you can get it. It's an occupational. Sculptors get it, too, so it's an occupational hazard. John, we have another caller. We have um, Isabel from New York. Everybody's calling from New York today. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, John. Hi, Debbie. Congratulations, Debbie, on 50, uh, 58 episodes. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, Isabel. John, I have a question here. Yes. When do you anticipate finishing your 16 Laws of Simplicity since you've oh. only completed 13 so far? Oh, good question. Well, uh, I'm actually, uh, this, the laws of simplicity, I, I, I set it to 16 knowing that I could reduce it to fewer. And I now have 10 laws of simplicity. Um, I just finished a book, uh, Laws of Simplicity, that outlines the 10, the 10 laws, which I will be announcing in August. They're basically a digested version of all that uh, simplicity thinking. Uh-huh. Now, John, are you still going to stop the blog after you reach the 16 that you talked about on the Simplicity website? Um, I'm going to be launching a new blog, actually, oh. um, that, that just focuses purely on the laws, and it's about sort of uh, different products I hate and like, and uh, I hope it'll be a fun place. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, I, on, some, on the Simplicity uh, site, you have 26 links, and I was wondering how yes. you came to <laughs> that, 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 that elusive number, and with only one more left, what that might link to. Oh, well, I... I I, you know, I always forget how many letters in the alphabet. Ah. 25 or 26. Okay, okay. And, there you um, have it. I left one empty just for mystery. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get a lot of people who want to be that link, so it's kind of funny. I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, now, in terms of um, non-computer-oriented topics, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about typography. Yes. Um, one of the things that you said... Um, that I read this week was typography at its best is a visual form of language linking timelessness and time. And I'd really love to talk to you a little bit more about what you mean by that. Timelessness and time. Did we lose Isabel? I believe that uh, she's still with us, Isabel. I guess we did. Oh, thanks, Isabel. Thank you, Isabel, for calling. <laughs> uh, about typography, well, you know... Um, I, 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 I used to love, t- I have a lot of loves, and then, uh, at least in terms of uh, topics, and I, I kind of lose faith in them. And typography is one that I sort of keep coming back to. Um, I think typography is something we always understand. Um, it's something that is uh, the abstract made, made real, made literal. Um, at the same time, it's something we experience over time. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks static, but our eyes have to scan it. So the word lives forever. Um, and the word, but the word isn't isn't stable. Our eyes are making this this whole page into a dynamic dynamic medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
I mean, I'm always fascinated by the science of the way that we see the order in which we see things. One of the things that I, I love probably more than, than any other aspect of design and art is art that has some sort of text to it or some sort of message. Um, and I feel like that's like the complete experience of everything we're trying to do. It's okay. only unfortunate that there isn't one universal way of being able to express things that everybody can understand. Text is so powerful. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that you wrote that I love that I wrote down, typographic themes are always immediately endearing because when draped over even the most abstract of ideas, they appear to make sense from nothing. And I think that's one of the most beautiful lines from Meta at okay. Media. I mean, I, I've really been, you know, by, by, by writing a book, you know, I usually made books with a lot of images. Now by writing a, a text-only book, it's been such a wonderful uh, task to design with text. Now, I know that you said that you had a self-described typography affliction, yeah. that you reached the limits when you created yes. the 10 variants on the logotype of the Japanese type foundry Morisawa Company. Uh -huh. So what's, what, is, what do you consider to be a typography affliction? Well, I was part of a Swiss typography mafia in Tokyo. <laughs> I didn't know there was this. Kind of a shady man <laughs> a in the strange side of the streets, really seriously of Shinjuku. Wow. And um, I would go there, and I would feel bad. You know, it was kind of like if I did something wrong by these Swiss typogra typographic rules, I would just feel, like, dirty, you know? Mm. And after a while... Breaking I, the I, grid. You know, yeah, I broke the grid. I'm going to die, <laughs> kind of thing, you know? Something bad is going to happen. Something bad is going to happen. And after a while, and I was lucky to just break free from it, and I felt much, much happier. I adopted the uh, British style, freestyle. <laughs> Oh, well, we have to take another break, John, our last break of the show. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to the 50th show and the season three finale of Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is John Maida. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Dynamic and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, part two of Adobe's Voices of Design series, a documentary that brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange. Today's topic is sustainability. Enjoy. The power of designers and their influence on sustainability. Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Michael Schwab, Schwab Design. Design does influence people, and whether it's subconsciously or, or obviously, design does mean a lot, and, and, and it leaves a lasting impression. Paul Sappho, Institute for the Future. Designers are thought leaders, and they're action leaders. Designers have got to get this right, and they've got to define it right, because if they get it wrong, all their wrong ideas are going to be embedded in everything everybody else uses. Mark Willard. IDO. Designers have been shaping culture for as long as there's been design. We have a huge opportunity, and I think before long it's going to be an obligation or a mandate to figure out how to solve these projects, these issues, these desires with sustainably relevant solutions. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. 
The challenge of change comes as ramped up due to the advent of information age and the interconnectedness of global community. In a high-tech world, the ability to embrace change, adapt, and respond accordingly is key to personal and professional success. Talking Change with Ann Powers, airing every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, explores the hows, whys, and what to do when faced with change. Embrace the new reality, adopt transition into your personal power portfolio, and tune into Talking Change with Ann Powers every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Bottom Line Business Talk, Voice America Business. The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.48 Eastern Time, and you are listening to the final moments of our 50th show and the Season 3 finale of Design Matters with Debbie Millman live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is educator, designer, and visionary John Maida. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for John, this is your last chance to call us, 1-866-472-5790. And we do have a caller. We have caller Mary. Mary from New York, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Congrats on your 50th show. Thank you. Thank um, you. My question is for John. Are, do you consider yourself more right brain or more left brain? <laughs> oh, that's middle. a really great question. <laughs> that's a great question, Mary. I can never remember which one is the right and which one is the left. The left brain. Is right logical, left is... Left is the um, the right side of the body, which is logic, and the right side of the brain, I believe, is controls the left side of the body, which is more creative and artistic. Well, you know, the, I I think it kind of depends upon the day and the situation. I mean, I I desire to be illogical, but certain <laughs> certain logical events of the day, you know, hit you. You got to go to a meeting. You have to be coherent, and uh, then you're sort of messing around with your kids, and it sort of feels good. And and I actually did an MBA for the reason of clearing out my brain to partition all the logic, and it actually worked. Uh, so I'm not sure which is the left, but I've been able to sort of keep them balanced on both sides, and um, I'm just very happy right now. Well, thank you for calling, Mary. That was a question, actually, that I was thank talking you, to John about during one of our breaks. I was telling John that I was speaking to a designer yesterday and, and in anticipation of the show was sort of sharing some of my thoughts about John and felt that John is, is one of the few, if only, uh, living designer, artists, scientists, educators today that I believe has sort of that perfect balance of left and right brain mentality. So it's, thank you for asking that question. I think it's an interesting one. John, I want to I ask you about um, your feelings about technology. Um, is there anything that scares you about technology? Um, I think what scares me is the issue of uh, privacy and trust, and this whole idea of, you know, are, are is somebody watching you? Mm -hmm. You know, is someone tracking your behavior? Which happens all the time. Mm -hmm. if you open up your browser and look at the cookies and see how many people, how many computer programs are watching your behavior. Um, it feels very. Uh, unnerving. You know, it's kind of like going to Disneyland, and when you go there, it all seems nice and simple and pristine, but they're Disneyland cops, they're Disneyland mm. auditors counting you. They're, they're all watching you, watching your habits. So once you realize that that layer is there, you, you feel different. How do you feel about what the, the decision that Google made for information in China? Right. 
I was very unhappy with that. I mean, it was a it was the right business decision, but I mean, so many people love Google and love its sort of I guess more liberal policies. And to make a business decision, the correct business decision of moving to China with those restrictions, I was kind of bummed by it.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you feel about the whole intellectual proper intellectual property、um, issue with their sort of holding images on、um, in their searches? Well, you know, the, at the same time, the good thing about the web is you can you, you really can't. There's no way to to completely stop trafficking of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, the beauty is that someone can always, you know, stuff an image in a basket of bread across the web. <laughs>、uh, it's it's going to get there.、Um, so in that sense, I'm 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 happy that people will always design ways around these barriers. Now, do you feel that we are、um, in danger of sort of being big brothered by the ability for people to be watching what we're doing on the internet? Do you feel like the the path is is a, a harrowing one moving forward, or do、oh, you feel like ultimately freedom of speech and right, and right, will, right, will prevail? I mean, what is、right. what is your sense? Are you optimistic or pessimistic well, about、um, it? Well, you know, there are a lot of people working in this area to protect both sides, you know, both the、uh, shutting down and also opening up.、Um, I'd like to be optimistic that、uh, people or the the people can unite and keep this whole. Free network traffic of information happening,、um, but it, it requires action. So the nice thing about the design community or any community is it, you can listen and you can do. And if more people do,、uh, we'll always be free and open.、Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have time for too many more questions, but I I wanted to ask you about something that you wrote in、um, I believe it's it's in Meta at Media.、Um, you said that perhaps the most powerful impetus for self improvement. Is to be flatly told that your work stinks, <laughs> and、it's、I want、true. to know. If, first of all, I want to know if anybody's ever told you that. Oh, completely. I remember when I was a student in Japan. This professor, I was waiting to see this other professor, but this other professor saw me and said, "Come into my office." He closed the door, chewed me out, and told me how I would amount to nothing—absolutely nothing—and I felt so bad afterwards. I can't but, imagine a teacher doing that. Well, you know, I see teachers like that here at Martia, <laughs> but but、uh, the reality is that you know sometimes you need a balance, and、uh, to be told you're nothing、um, is useful in some cases. But、um, in my life now at MIT, I, I don't believe in that policy. I believe that、uh, if you're any good, you know you suck.、Um, so who has to tell you that? I don't believe that anymore. Well, I, I, I always feel that when I feel really good about something that I've created, chances、yeah. are it really sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I always am somewhat suspected. I mean, I was actually was talking about this yesterday as well. Yeah, I think、right. it was Picasso that said, "Whenever you fall in love with something in your work, throw it away.、Oh, it can't、completely. be very good.、It、can't、oh, be very good."、Oh, yeah. So, so you have a book that's coming out in September. This will be your fourth book. Is that not correct? Yes,、uh-huh. the laws of simplicity,、yeah. and are these du- directly taken from your simplicity blog, or is this work that is、um, brand new or both?、Uh, it's all. It's actually. I tried to make the blog into a book, but it didn't work out. The blog blog is definitely a different thing. It's taking、like、a radio show and making it into a book. They're two different media.、Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a it's a brand new book. It's a very short book, a hundred page book, and、um, it's a very different book from you because it's not a, a very visual book. At oh, least it's not tangibly three, visual.、It's、the three figures.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really had a good time with it. 
And uh, are you going to, I mean, in terms of, of the way that the book is going to be marketing, are you going to be going out and doing, you know, the book tours? and? Uh, probably, yeah. Yeah? Give lectures in different uh, cities, yeah. So if you had to advise somebody that was right. at the start of their path to come oh. all the way back to the beginning of the show and sort right. of standing at the at the precipice of your future, yeah. what advice might you give a designer that's just starting out or an artist that is reconsidering right. how to get the most out of their work, their lives, their technology? What advice might you give someone? Um, I would tell them to, to always study the opposite. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think when I went to art school, the, uh, the headmaster said that um, uh, the best artists don't go to art school. You know, people that break the mold are not stuck in the mold. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in a program, you have to deny its, its its foundations because if you don't, you're stuck in that in the jet stream of the field. Mm-hmm. So, always kind of believing that maybe what you're learning is important, but maybe it's not. Um, I think is important. Well, I think that um, perhaps it's about trying to um, rewrite your codes and. It, it, I know Paula Antonelli writes that, that you play your computer like a violin, and so perhaps we can all sort of learn from that and try and integrate all of these mediums in our lives moving forward to create the best possible life for all of us. That would be nice. But um, we've come to the end of the show, John, and I, I want to thank you for being here. It's the end of our third season today, the 50th episode of Design Matters. Your 50th. Thank you. I'd like to say thank you to you, John, and a very special thanks to our sponsors this year, Adobe and Nina Paper. I'd also like to thank Ruben Colomb and Brian Travis at Voice America and Lisa Grant, Jen Simon, and my partners at Sterling. Next week, Voice America will start rebroadcasting our full Season 3 shows, beginning with Chip Kidd, and we'll be back on the air live January 5th, 2007, with author, designer, and brand guru, Marty Neumeyer. I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, without who this show would not be possible. I appreciate all of your emails and letters and all of your support. Always remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next season. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business.